0: So again, thank you for joining us. It's good to have you here to be part of the service today, and I'm excited for today's message and to continue talking about this series that we're in, this theme of what story are you telling. You know, if you were around back in, well, I guess all of you here were around in 1996, except some of the little people here, that there was a new term or a new label that emerged. A uh, Cole probably wasn't here. A new label or a new term that emerged in 1996. To kind of label a a popular segment of society, a new label emerged to uh, describe a social anxiety. In 1996, we began to talk about the fear of missing out. Some of you know that by its acronym of FOMO. Fear of missing out became popularized in 1996 when a man by the name of Dan Herman identified this group of people and sometimes the struggle that they had with the fear of missing out. Dan is a popular, well-known marketing strategist, and he began to notice the subculture or this group of people in our society who have this deep fear of missing out. Some of you probably know that term. You know what it means, fear of missing out. Describes people that they may, might notice that their friends are doing an activity and they feel like, boy, I'm really missing out because I'm not included. It's not just a, a little sense of I'm missing out, but it's this deep sense of I'm missing something that is fundamentally important. That I, because I'm not involved in that, I'm really missing out in a deep way. So that term has become popularized to describe people who feel like this great absence. And not only is it is just a little bit of a fear of missing out, but it, it really attacks a person and gives them anxiety and it kind of will cripple a person to the point where they kind of feel helpless or they might feel hopeless. So this can be anywhere from feeling like, man, I'm missing out, my friends are all at dinner, to the feeling of, boy, somebody else has a better life than I do. So fear of missing out has become popular in the last 20 years. Now I think a lot of times when we talk about stuff like fear of missing out we kind of think well if I could figure out what causes it maybe I could come up with a solution or we like to go back and say okay what is the origin of fear of missing out and actually I don't think many of you would be surprised to know that the origin of fear of missing out actually started probably on about the second or third page of the Bible. When Satan kind of slithered into the scene, and in my own words, my paraphrase word, he got between Adam and Eve and said to them, do you know what? I think you're missing something. When Satan sneaked on scene and basically said to Adam and Eve, I think God is holding out on you. I think you could have something better in your life but God is holding out on you. You guys, Probably most of you know that passage in Genesis 3, 1-5 that says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat of it or touch it or you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. See, it's that one little question, that one little question that Satan slithered on the scene and said to the Adam and Eve, perhaps you're missing out on something. Well, that wasn't the end of sin that day. It would actually, sin, as we all know, continued on, and it usually continues on because we wonder if we're missing out on something. Now, tell you the truth, I think most people experience a fear of missing out in one way or another. I think a lot of us, even inside the church, experience fear of missing out. I think there's two different ways that we experience fear of missing out when it comes to Christ. I think the first, time we've experienced fear of missing out is I would call FOMO 1.0 and that's kind of when you're not a Christian yet or you're considering coming to Christ and you're kind of evaluating and you're thinking I'm not sure if I actually want to become a Christian because I might miss out on some things that's a lot of times people will look at Christianity and think well that's not really fun I might miss out on something and so sometimes people will look at Christianity and think well it's too restrictive or it's too uh, prevents me from doing some things that i like to do and I, it's at these times you have those tricky discussions about sexual ethics or moral ethics and people are kind of wondering if i come to christ do i really want to give something up and it's during this time that the lord continues to pursue our hearts and to draw us into a relationship with him but it's it's a hard conversation because in many ways It's hard to surrender to the fact that something that I might really enjoy may not actually be what's really good for me or actually be what's going to ultimately give me joy. But I think a lot of times after we settle that fear of missing out 1.0, we kind of move on to what I call fear of missing out out 2.0. And that's for people that are followers of Jesus, you're followers of Christ. You you settle that issue in your heart, but then you kind of wonder, am I going to miss out on anything that God has for me? You may, might be severely committed to Christ, but you wonder, am I going to miss out? Is God trying to speak to me and I'm going to miss what he's saying? Or maybe something from your past is haunting you and you're wondering, am I ever going to move forward from this situation? I think a lot of us experience that fear of missing out, wondering, does God have a plan for my life and I'm just going to miss it? And I think sometimes people do worry about that, thinking that there's something else that God has for you and you're just going to miss it. I think a lot of us have this question. We wonder, is God speaking to me and I'm not hearing him? I think we do have these questions. But I think often what makes us wonder if we're going to miss God or what makes us wonder if God is speaking to us and we're not hearing him is because we use the phrase, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, I think that's a good. That's okay. That's biblical. God does have a wonderful plan for your life. The scripture is very clear that God is well aware of every person on earth. There's no such thing as a person being born and God's not aware of that person or doesn't know who that person is. None of us need to worry that you might be praying and God's listening going, I have no idea who that person is. God is aware of each person on earth and he's aware and he also has a plan for each person. But I think sometimes when we say God has a wonderful plan for your life, we miss actually what the Bible's trying to tell us. I think there's a better way to say God has a wonderful plan for your life. Greg Kokel brings this up in his book, The Story of Reality. I love this book by Greg Kokel, and actually he says it quite well. He says, Sometimes when you say that God has a wonderful plan for your life, the perspective is in the wrong order. So listen to how he proposes to change that sentence from God has a wonderful plan for your life. He said the story is not so much about God's plan for your life, as it is about your life for God's plan. Think about that. It's your life for God's plan. See, another way to say it is that God has a plan, and he's including your life in the plan. I think when you switch up the words, it does give you a very different perspective. Because I think sometimes when we say God has a wonderful plan for your life, which is very true, it makes it sound like each person has their own individualized custom plan for their life. Like there's a plan for my life, and then there's a plan for Jake's life, and there's a plan for Cole's life, and we all have our individualized plan that God is trying to work out for each of us. Well, the truth is, the the greater reality is that God has one plan, and he's drawing us all into that plan to be part of his plan. I think that gives a different perspective that brings more comfort and more security. Because when you say that God has a plan, suddenly... Sometimes we say that God has a plan for your life. It makes it sound like you are the center of the universe, that everything God is doing is all about making that plan for you to come to reality, when the truth is God has one plan that he's drawing us all into, and God is at the absolute center of the plan. And I think that's comforting because that plan is about God, and the plan about God puts the pressure on God to make the plan happen. And it's comforting too because we see God draws us into the plan. We're a very important part of this plan. That's why God sent Jesus to this world to die for us, to bring us into this plan. But this plan was never supposed to revolve around us as individual people. And sometimes that's hard to hear in our American culture because we like to have an individualized custom plan that's all about me and all about my future and all about what I like. But the truth is that there is one plan. And God, by his grace and mercy, calls us into that plan. So the question is, well, what is my part of the plan? Well, that could be a whole sermon series in itself about what is my part of the plan. But for the sake of this series, we have been talking about how God calls us into this plan, and part of our life is to tell the story of this plan. That we have a story to tell to the nations. We have a message to give to the nations. We have a testimony to tell other people, and so that's what we've been focusing on this series is that God calls us into this plan to tell other people about this plan. And we know we all have a story. We all have a testimony. Some of you, you have a testimony of you were kind of an early adapter to God's plan. And when you heard about God's plan, you quickly followed along. And you have a a testimony of knowing Christ your whole life or since you were a little child, and you don't ever recall a time when you didn't know God. But then some of you here, you have a testimony of well, you kind of rebelled against the plan that God has for you for maybe, a, for maybe for a few years or a decade or two or even more because you weren't really sure that you wanted to be part of this plan. So I think a lot of us have, we all have a unique relationship to God and the way that God captured our heart is a story that people want to hear. I think people, a lot of people want to know, why, do, why did you become a Christian? Why did you surrender your life to Christ? I think that's a question that a lot of people have. What makes you dedicated to Christ? Why are you devoted to Christ? Why do you give up things to follow Jesus? Some of you know that the purpose statement for Lake Effect Church is that we would become a people devoted to Christ and His message for the world. That's who we are as people. That's who we are as Christ followers. But that's also what people want to know that don't know Christ is, why are you a Christian? Why would you want to do that? Because the world's view is if you are a Christian, you are missing out. You're missing out on a lot of other stuff that you could be doing because they look at Christianity as it's very restrictive. So part of our story that we're telling is we're telling people how did Jesus captivate our heart that would cause us to live and to act very different? And see, a lot of times when we want to tell people the story of our life or the story of how Jesus captured our heart, we often start By telling people about sin. Or we tell them what they can't do. But I think there's a prior conversation that needs to happen sometimes before we talk about sin. And that's what I want to focus on in this message. Sometime before we talk about sin and about Jesus, what he came to do, people need to understand, well, who is God? What is God's role in all of this? See, right now in modern culture, Jesus has a pretty good reputation. People like Jesus, but a lot of people, they don't like God. They don't want to be part of God. But people are curious, what is God and what is God's role in this? So I want to back up to Genesis 1 verse 1 and talk about four points today about who is God. In Genesis 1 verse 1 is probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible that probably all of you know is, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. One verse, and there's a lot of truth into that verse. So I want to draw four points today that help us understand the story of God's plan. Some of you might say, well, everything you're going to talk about is pretty obvious. What well, is? Probably most of you sitting here today or listening online are probably like, what's well, obvious? I know those four points. But I'm bringing up this message and reminding of those four points because sometimes they might be obvious to you, but they're not obvious to other people. And sometimes when something is so obvious to us, we forget that a lot of people, it's not obvious to them. And so when we're sharing the message of who Christ is, sometimes we miss what is very obvious to us. So the first truth that we see in Genesis 1 verse 1 is that God existed before anything else. The truth of Genesis 1 is that God is eternal. He's the only one who is eternal, and he existed before anything else began. God existed before the foundations of the earth. God had nothing, but God is when everything got started. I think we know this, but it's a good point to remind us is that God is eternal and he existed before anything else. And the second truth that we see from Genesis 1 is that God created everything. Everything is created because of God alone. Well, god created it but he's also in debt to nobody for what he created because he created everything out of what he owns and therefore everything that god creates belongs to him this is when people start having a hard time that what god creates belongs to him but you think about it if god existed before nothing existed he created everything out of his own resources then it all belongs to him and because it belongs to god He has complete authority over everything that is created. And that usually is a point of tension for people, is that, okay, this God, okay, I believe that he's eternal, maybe he existed before anything else, maybe he created everything, but now when you tell people that God has authority over everything, that's usually a tough one for people to understand. And I think at the core of this is sometimes people have a different definition of what is freedom. What is freedom? See, a lot of people say freedom is when I can choose to do whatever I want whenever I want. Freedom is the lack of restraint on my life. I can make my own choices. But is that really the definition of freedom? Is that a biblical definition of freedom? Because a biblical definition from freedom is much more is my freedom to do what God has called me to do. Biblical definition of freedom is not so much what I'm free from doing, is but what I'm free to do. Let me give you an illustration that Josh McDowell uses. Imagine that there was a person that was going to play the piano. And the person sat down to play the piano, and they had absolutely no idea how to play the piano. They didn't know how a piano worked. They couldn't read music. They didn't know sheet music at all. But they're going to sit down and play the music without restraint. They're going to play the piano with complete freedom to do it however they wanted to do and so they sat down and just randomly hit keys but then you have a person over here that's going to play the piano but they understand the piano they understand the purpose of a piano they understand how it works together they understand how the keys work together they understand music theory they're able to read music and they can sit down and play a beautiful song on a piano who has the most freedom would be the question Is it the person over here that lacks restraint and doesn't know how to play, or the person who's dedicated their life to understanding the piano and the purpose of music and how it all works together to play a beautiful song? I think we'd say the person over here that understands the purpose of a piano has the most freedom. But see, sometimes we like to say, well, if I can do whatever I want, that's freedom, But see, God always uses his authority to pull us into what gives us purpose. God uses his authority not to restrict us, but he uses authority to draw us into the purpose and the plan that he has for our life. That's how God always uses his authority, is with love and compassion, so we can understand his plan and understand his purpose and how it all works along together. That is always how God uses his authority. To give us freedom, draws us away from something else and draws us to something to give us freedom. That is freedom when you understand plans and purposes so you can dedicate your life to seeing how God is going to work things together. But I think sometimes things happen in our life that we get curious about. When hard things happen in our life and we think, well, how am I going to have a meaningful life? I think sometimes challenging things happen in our life and we wonder, is God really there or we wonder, is God really involved or am I going to miss out on something? I love the Old Testament story of Hannah. And I opened up this message today and I read her prayer that she prayed to God. But we look at Hannah's story and it's an interesting story because life wasn't going well for Hannah. Hannah was experiencing Old Testament. She was experiencing Old Testament fear of missing out. Because Hannah wanted a child, and she wanted a child very bad, and she prayed consistently for a child, and it didn't happen until. Let me read the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, verse 2 through 18. Alkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. Each year, Alkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven's armies at the tabernacle, The priests of the Lord at the time were two of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the day Elkanah presented the sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Peninnah and to each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would only give her one choice portion because the Lord had not given her any children. So Peninnah would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. "'Year after year, it was the same. "'Penina would taunt Hannah as she went to the tabernacle. "'Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears "'and would not even eat. "'Why are you crying, Hannah?' Alcana would ask. "'Why aren't you eating? "'Why be downhearted just because you have no children? "'You have me. Isn't that better than having ten sons?' "'Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, "'Hannah got up and went to pray.' As she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her. Seeing her lips moved, moving, but hearing no thought, he thought to himself she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk, he demanded. Throw away your wine. No, no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I am very discouraged, and I was pouring out my sorrow to the Lord. Don't think I am a wicked woman, for I have been praying out of a great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request that you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she explained. Then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. This is a unique story in the Old Testament, but I think it has plenty of um, application to each of our lives. See, the story begins with Hannah. She's a godly woman, and she had been asking and praying for a son. And obviously, the Lord hasn't answered her prayer, and she's kind of desperate. See, back in her day, for a woman not to have any children, was that barrenness was almost a sign of a curse. It was very difficult for a woman in that day not to have any of your children, and it was very challenging for them. See, back in that day, your children were more than just offspring. They were almost security for you. In an agricultural society, you needed children to work the farm. You needed children to be part of your household labor, and you needed children that would care for you when you're older. They didn't have the social security system or nursing homes that you could go to. So you wanted to have many children. So as you got older, your kids could take care of you or also your kids could work on the farm. So children were a very big status symbol in that day. You needed kids. And for Hannah, she had none. And obviously, it's bothering her a whole lot. And so it's probably why her husband decided to marry another wife because he wanted to have children and he needed children. So now Hannah is... One of the wives of Alcana, and she's not able to have any children. And so it's a hard situation for her. It's very depressing. It's very discouraging. And there's a lot of social stigma attached to her situation. And to top it off, Panina, the other wife, had to like taunt Hannah and remind Hannah quite a bit, you have no children, to discourage her. In fact, in the scripture talks about when it says Panina taunted Hannah, that word for taunt is a Hebrew word that would describe a bad storm. So it's describing a bad storm like a hurricane or an earthquake or a tornado, some bad storm, and it's giving the implication of that's what's going on inside of Hannah. So Hannah's feeling alone. She's feeling desperate. She's confused. She's feeling helpless. And on top of that, on her inside, she's feeling like it's a storm inside of her, kind of like she has this tornado inside of her. I think we can imagine what she's feeling like nothing is working out right for her she wants a son she needs a son she's been praying she's been asking God over and over again and he doesn't answer her prayers and she's at that point of hopelessness and helplessness and so we see Hannah what is she doing before she gets up to pray she's sitting down at another meal she's sitting at a meal and she's listening to two voices and I think a lot of us struggle with these two voices. On one hand, she has Panina taunting her, taunting her and reminding her that she doesn't have what she thinks she needs, reminding her that she's, 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 she's miserable, reminding her that she doesn't have any children, so she's inadequate. And on the other hand, she has her husband, who seems like a nice guy, trying to encourage Hannah, but saying, hey, at least you have me. Shouldn't that make up for that you don't have any kids? And on the one hand, that's the nice husband to say that, but our source of joy and strength and happiness was never supposed to come just from a spouse. Marriage is great, friendship is great, but that's never intended to be your source of joy. But that's what Alcana is saying to Hannah. Yeah, but you should be happy because you're married to a nice guy and so Hannah is sitting at a table hearing these two voices one voice telling her how bad she is how terrible she is how rotten she is reminding her that she's hopeless and the other voice saying yeah but you should be happy because you have a nice husband so Hannah's miserable nothing is going to work out for her until verse 9 says that she got up from the table when she got up from the table that word used to describe she got up to the table it means she got up from the table with determination She got up from that table with a resolve that things are going to change. And she got up from that table, and where did she go? She went to the Lord, and she poured out her heart. She was praying so hard before the Lord that she's crying that Eli the priest thinks that she's drunk. And I think that's important to see that Hannah was sitting at a table listening to those two voices and finally She heard the Lord and she got up from the table and walked out of the situation and poured out her heart before God. I think we can't miss that point in the story about Hannah that she had to get up from her situation, the heartbrokenness that she was experiencing, and move away from that situation and go before the Lord and pour out her heart. And once she poured out her heart, she became a different person. See, when Hannah went to the Lord and prayed, she prayed a similar prayer. She prayed, God, would you give me another son? Would you give me a son? But this time her prayer was very different. She said to the Lord, she said to the Lord, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to you. But this wasn't one of those prayers that, you know, we kind of pray a little manipulative prayer where we might say, God, if you give me this, I'll use it for your kingdom. Hannah was saying, if you give me a son, I will give him to you 100%. This wasn't one of those prayers, you know, God, if you let me win the lottery, I'll I'll tithe it, or maybe I'll even give you 20%. She was saying, if you give me a son, I will completely give him back to you. See, Hannah, when she was praying to the Lord, she promised that not a razor would ever touch his head or his hair would never be cut. She was making a vow before God that her son would become a priest. Now, back in that day, not everybody just got to become a priest. You won't just decide when you're older, well, I think I'll become a priest and go to the Hebrew priest school. You had to be born into the tribe of Levi in order to be a priest. You had to be from a Levite family in order to be a priest. Well, Samuel is not from the tribe of Levi. So how can his mom make a vow and say his hair will never be cut, that he will become a Like a Nazarite priest. How can that happen? See, the only way that Samuel could become a priest is if her mom dedicated, the parents dedicated to him at a young age and brought him to the temple to be raised in the temple. And later in the scripture, it talks about after he was weaned, which he's probably two years old, his parents brought him to the temple and they turned him over to the temple. That's the dedication she had. See, Hannah wanted a child because she wanted a child to take care of her, to work in the family, but she was going to give all that up when God gave her Samuel because she wasn't going to have that enjoyment of having this little boy live with her the rest of his life. She wasn't going to have the advantage of he's going to go work in the farm, he's going to take care of everything. She's not going to have the advantage of Samuel's going to get older and take care of her. Instead, she's going to dedicate him to God and he's going to become a priest and he's going to live in the temple the rest of his life. That's interesting what Hannah did. But what's even more interesting is when the scripture tells us that after Hannah prayed, she went back to the meal and sat down and she ate and she was happy. See, prior to praying, the text tells us that Anna was sad and that she couldn't eat. And she goes and prays and pours her heart out before God and she comes back and she eats and she is now happy. See, you would expect the narrative in the Bible would say Hannah got up from the table, she prayed, she got pregnant, and then she was happy. But that's not what happened to Hannah. She got up from the table, she prayed, then she was happy, and then she got pregnant. Because when Hannah went before the Lord and poured out her heart before God, she suddenly realized she didn't need a son. What she needed was more of her relationship with God. But Hannah was led to believe that she needed something else in her life to bring her happiness and to bring her joy and to bring her fulfillment and to bring her security. She thought having a son would be the answer to her prayers, but what she finally realized was she needed God, that God was a source of her strength. God was a source of her joy, and that she no longer needed anything but a relationship with God. That's why after she poured out her heart before God, she could say, hey, if you give me a son, I am so content with my relationship with you that I can give him back to you. That's the peace that Hannah had after she prayed and poured her heart out before God. One minute, Hannah's sitting at a table. She's listening to voices tell her that she's no good. That she's worthless because she doesn't have any kids and she's listening to her husband say yeah but actually you have a relationship with me that should satisfy you and then the next minute she's in the temple she's pouring out her heart before god telling him what's bothering her what's hurting and suddenly god shifts her heart and her hope entire paradigm and she realizes that everything that she needs is found in her relationship with god what hannah needed to experience was the truth See, the Bible tells us that the truth sets us free. And sometimes I think our biggest point of brokenness is lack of truth. Sometimes our biggest brokenness in our life is when we don't know the truth and we believe lies and we listen to that voice on our shoulder that says, well, you're no good because of this situation. You're no good because you don't have this. You're no good and you're missing out on something. Or the other voice that tells us, well, you can find all your fulfillment in another person. None of that was true for Hannah. Once she discovered the truth that God was everything she needed, then she experienced freedom. Then she experienced joy. See, when Jesus tells in John 14, when Jesus makes his announcement to the world, what does he say who he is? He said he's the way and he's the truth and he is the life. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to draw us into the one plan that God has for us. And he draws us into this plan with truth. Because when we understand the truth, and we understand our purpose, we understand his purpose, and how they relate together, and then we experience the abundant life that we've all been looking for. But Hannah had to get up from the table I think that would be my encouragement to you. Maybe some of you are listening to me and you are in a situation and you need to get up. You need to get up out of that situation and walk away and pour your heart out before God to find your joy and security and contentment in your relationship with God and not look for it and maybe an answer to your prayer or maybe another person to fulfill it, but look for the fulfillment that God has for you. Let me join me in prayers before we close it up with the song. Father, I just come before you, Lord, and I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your goodness to each of us. and God, I thank you for the story of Hannah and Lord, I thank you that you give, gave her the grace and the tenacity to step up from the table, to step out out of her situation and go to you in earnest prayer. God, I pray for every person listening to me, Lord. That if there's anyone here today, Lord, that needs to, that, Lord, you would set them free from listening to the voices that would try to discourage them or try to lead them to find comfort in another place. God, I pray that you'd speak loudly to each person that's listening to me, that you would give us the grace to step up out of our situation and into the plan that you have for us. Jesus, I thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And God, I pray that you would show us your way. May your Holy Spirit lead each person here, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.